as Slavo. Today we're discussing the aforementioned Muhammad Ali, aka Cassius Clay, aka the greatest, aka the people's champion, and aka, which is my favorite nickname for him, the Louisville Lip. Nice. I was hoping you were gonna get to the Louisville Lip. Louisville Lip. That was his. Um, I think that was like his first big nickname when, mm-hmm. when he was fighting out of Louisville. And I just yeah. love that name because he was because of all the trash talking. Yeah, he was a big talker. It was probably initially meant as a little bit of a slight. People were like, "Oh, the Louisville Lip running his mouth again." And but then Ali just took the name and owned it, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm the Louisville Lip." <laughs> so if you do not know, as a listener, Muhammad Ali is a world-famous heavyweight boxer from the United States. He's from Louisville, Kentucky, and he is known as really one of the most influential people in the United States in the 20th century. He was um, a world-famous athlete. He was an icon of sports. He was an icon of pacifism, which was really interesting. He was a cultural icon. He was a he was a race icon when it came to um, African-American and white American relations. I mean, he was pretty much everywhere in society through when he started becoming famous in the 60s until basically until the time of his death. Yeah. According to the internet, he may be the most written about person to ever exist. It's so historical, this story about Muhammad Ali. You get the context of the Korea War, the context of race in America, the civil rights movement is such a pivotal time. Yeah. And for some context, he was so he would do these things called prize fights, where in boxing, everything is set up to make it so you have these two Goliaths that go up against each other. And a lot of times they're both undefeated. So say you have Muhammad Ali, who's 20 and 0, and you have Joe Frazier, who's 19 and 0 and they're fighting for this big belt and it's all built up to these big monumental moments in boxing and basically what Muhammad Ali did was he was at the center of like the biggest ones ever and it was big event after big event after big event these these boxing matches that he was in were the most viewed television events ever at the time it was literally the biggest events now which today you would think about maybe the world the fifa world cup or you would think about the olympics which are these events viewed by everyone in the world back in the late 60s early 70s it was muhammad ali and whoever he was fighting it was, were these events yeah absolutely so let's get it started take it all the way back 1942 January 17th, Muhammad Ali is born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. in Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky. The name is significant because it's his father's name. And also his, his father was named after a abolitionist named Cassius Marcellus Clay. And he grew up in the time of segregation in the United States where white and black businesses, schools were separated in the South United States, also known as the Jim Crow era, a very uh, scary time to be an African-American in the United States. Yeah. There's the famous story when as a kid, he wanted a water, his mom went into a store and they were like, the cashier is, it's whites only. We can't get your young kid a water. The management would fire me. So it gives you a, a sign of the times and the environment Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay at this point is growing up in. Yeah, he was feeling the pain of race relations, and he also, as a child, was dyslexic, so he didn't do very well in school. His reading and writing were not as strong, and his speaking were not as strong as some of the other students, so he was feeling a lot of environmental and personal problems. He had his bike stolen when he was 12. And he said he was going to go whoop. Also, I just love how Muhammad Ali is always talking about whooping people. Yeah, that's how it works. But yeah, in that time, you know, you're going to whoop someone, you do something wrong, your parents are going to whoop your behind. 
get you straight. His dad in that time in their culture, if Muhammad Ali and his brother, they weren't home by dark, they'd get a little bit of a whooping to keep them straight. Yeah. That's a, yeah, very, uh, very old school. Um, so he decided he was going to whoop some kid who stole his bike. And then a police officer, I don't know if he had been talking to the police officer, was basically like, well, if you're going to go get in a fight, you should learn how to box too. This is like the most classic. <laughs> oh, this is how he got into fighting. The guy was like, if you're going to get in a fight, you should learn how to box. And then he also happened to be a boxing trainer, mm-hmm. which is just... I don't know. I feel like that's how boxers and martial artists like always end up getting into the sport. Yeah, that's classic. I believe it's the famous story with Jerry Rice was like running from the principal and he just was lightning fast. And the principal then contacted the football coach and was like, you need to check out this guy named Jerry, Jerry Rice. That's pretty crazy. I mean, it's not, it's not surprising. Yeah. And, and yeah, so this uh, police officer, taught him how to box and it played a huge role in getting him involved in boxing. And Muhammad Ali, you know, later was always very complimentative of that moment. And he never got his bike back for those wondering, they went into the store, the bike vanished, never got it back. It was a Christmas present. There were tears. It's a a very (laughs) upsetting time. That's horrible. But he did become one of, if not the greatest boxer of all time. So, you know, was it worth it though? (laughs) Was it worth it? It has to be asked. (laughs) What if he had had that bike? What if he had become the Lance Armstrong of his time? Oh yeah. That's a good point. I guess it worked out for him. So he had his first professional bout when he was like 13 or not professional amateur bout when he was like 13 against this guy, Ronnie O'Keefe, which is just a great Irish name. (laughs) worked with some trainers until he was 18 and basically became a prolific amateur boxer. Mm -hmm. He won six Kentucky golden golden glove titles and golden glove is basically, it's like the state championship Yeah, and um, two national golden glove titles. So the national championship and then, Oh, no big deal. Just a gold medal at the 1960 summer Olympics. Yeah. So right away from this moment when the police officer introduced him to boxing he loved it he was really good and really dedicated he gave up pop soda he stopped drinking soda in his early teens which is that's serious side note question what was your pop of choice when you were (laughs) when you were a kid okay so if it's like a gaming night a sleepover and i have doritos mountain dew Mm. um all the flavors I feel like the green one, what's that? That's just the classic Mountain Dew, right? Yeah, that's the classic Mountain Dew. That was probably the go-to. The blue one was a big deal. And then I've always had a proclivity towards grape soda, whether it's like Fanta or whatever. I've always really liked grape soda. Do you hear that? Oh, yeah. It's getting louder. I just got completely lost in what you said. Because you used maybe the best word that I've heard used so far in this podcast. We're going to go from like a fun biographical <laughs> podcast to like an educational literary podcast. Because you just dropped proclivity <laughs> in the middle of a sentence. And it just completely, it, it caught me like a wave of just, it brought emotions out of me when you said it. <laughs> because it was just such a great word. Thank you. I like to think we... uh we tow the line of educational and just like plain stupid. <laughs> just like a couple idiots with dumb opinions. <laughs> we were when you said proclivity, we we were like the Kool-Aid man breaking into the room. <laughs> oh yeah. Into the educational podcast room. We were the stupid guys <laughs> that came into the educational <laughs> podcast room and busted down the wall because proclivity is like, I mean, that's, that's just great stuff out of you. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. now I'm going to get into my Kool-Aid man outfit and return outside of the educational room and say <laughs> that when I was a kid, I feel bad saying it, but I drank Diet Mountain Dew like it was water. Yeah. So much Diet Mountain Dew. We used to have like two <laughs> liters of Diet Mountain Dew around because my because my parents were like oh regular soda is bad for you so we just drank diet soda because it was quote, <laughs> quotes basically just seltzer water 
mm-hmm. come to find out i don't think that's the case i think mm-hmm. my stomach probably hates me but any preference between like the diet mountain dew from the can or versus like a fountain drink versus you know the bottles diet mountain dew if you get it out of like a two liter bottle I would say like a 20 ounce bottle is probably the best way to drink diet Mountain Dew. Mm. The best way to drink regular Mountain Dew is out of a can. Really? But diet Mountain Dew is probably best out of a a 20 ounce bottle. For the uh, soda connoisseurs, I think that might be controversial. I always thought the, the fountain was like the draft. It was the pinnacle of the taste. Mm, No, no, definitely not. Because what happens is, the way that fountain soda works is that they have carbonated water and then they have the flavoring mm-hmm. that is then injected into the fountain at the same time. And if sometimes you get at the tail end of the flavor oh, and it comes in and it's weak, you don't yeah. want weak soda. You're drinking like... If they get it just right, then it could be great. But mm-hmm. the consistency that you get out of, uh, out of the bottle or out of a can is Mm -hmm. is pretty good and then you can cool it to the temperature that you prefer i mean out of the fountain it comes out at a pretty good temperature but Mm -hmm. a can you want the cans to be nice and cold like a like a regular mountain dew regular mountain dew out of a can that is to the perfect refrigerator temperature is probably the best soda ever in my opinion Wow. Yeah. That, that was a journey. You, you, yeah, you got your details. You could, you could hold your best in the ring of any connoisseur of soda. I I guess I am kind of a soda connoisseur. I didn't, I've never really thought about it, but I've drank, I've drank a lot of soda and I've tried lots of soda. So I Mm -hmm. I probably have an opinion on most sodas, Mm -hmm. but it's again, flavor is, it's a personal journey. So whoever, if somebody says, Oh, Mountain Dew is gross, then that's okay by me. If you prefer Mr. Pibb or, uh, Coca-Cola, or if you're part of the, the Diet Coke Nation, which yeah. is, I mean, I'm sure we have tons of listeners who are big Diet Coke fans. I know people who are big Diet Coke fans. Diet Coke is like, it's it's a very, um, they have a strong contingent. Yeah, yeah. I definitely know people who drink Diet Coke every day. Where were we? <laughs> <laughs> Muhammad Ali not drinking soda, the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, in, in the Olympics, it sounded like he just kind of train wrecked his opponents straight to the championship yeah he was ready to turn pro and he turned pro right after the olympics and his final record as an amateur was 105 and 105 fights as an amateur that sounds like a lot of fights that's nuts that's so many fights yeah and so after the olympics he's a big name he signs a deal, you know, he has people now who are paying him a salary and get a percentage of any money he earns. And he is no longer an amateur working his way to the big time. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he, um, he turns pro and then he starts fighting people, working his way up to the top. The goal is to get to, you want to be the number one contender for the world heavyweight championship, which is the weight class that he fought in. So you got to beat basically everybody along the way. So in the first couple of years, he goes 19 and 0. He was the third and the contender. Then he beat the second contender and then he beat the first contender. And the whole time there was a, a wrestler, I can't remember his name, but basically he talked to this wrestler and the wrestler was talking to him about how like trash talking will put you in the limelight. Mm-hmm. And so he, as he was doing these professional fights, he just started, he would just taunt whoever he was fighting mm-hmm. and he would trash talk them and make fun of them to make it so he would create more uh, hoopla around the fighting, which was not something that was, I don't think it was super common at the time. Yeah, definitely not common in this, uh, the professional boxing. So this fighter or this professional wrestler, you know, WWE style drama, kind of like a show. His name is none other than Gorgeous George. (laughs) And the Ali family, or I guess the Clay family um, at the time when he was growing up, they would watch professional wrestling. Like his parents enjoyed watching WWE fake kind of acting wrestling and yeah he had this conversation with gorgeous george who is this trash talker you know a little arrogant poking people's buttons but people find him entertaining some people hate him some people love him but they're all paying tickets and 
Muhammad Ali recognize this and it was like a conscious effort to become that guy in the media kind of like we see with conor mcgregor now where he is intentionally poking buttons muhammad ali was a poet like he would write poems and then a lot of his you know his future fights we'll see he would rhyme or he would you know it have a little flavor what is it the rumble in the jungle he's like i'm gonna in round seven i'm gonna send him to heaven he would have all these trash talking lines that would like rhyme yeah he knew how to do it and it was intentional yep because when you're in the spotlight and you start poking everybody either a people are gonna come they're gonna watch your fight to see you win or they're gonna watch your fight to see you lose and if you have people of no matter how they feel about muhammad ali either they loved him or they hated him they would still watch him fight Mm -hmm. and i have a few lines here that muhammad ali used to trash talk just to give the listeners a feel you want to say them to me yeah i'm going to direct them at slavo hopefully you know hopefully we can keep it civil and things don't come fist to cuffs which did happen in some of muhammad ali's pre-fights i think one with i think it was joe frazier they like ended up wrestling and it was it was a serious event but all right slavo i heard about you you're that ugly fella <laughs> Uh, Paz, if you even dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's a good one. That's a good one. But you're a big, ugly bear. You smell like one. And after I'm through with you, I'll give you to the zoo. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I've wrestled with alligators. I've tussled with a whale. I've done handcuffed lightning and throw thunder in jail. You know I'm bad. Just last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. <laughs> oh, love it. And stuff like that, or lines like such, he's not coming up with that on the spot. This man, this is a craft. All right, I'll, I'll try to... I'll make a peace offering with our phrases. Slavo, you're as wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. Thanks, Paz. All listeners, Paz wants to call me a dove. That's great. That's great. But the thing about Paz, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. Now you see me, now you don't. Paz thinks he will, but I know he won't. That's his tagline, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Did you have any more any more insults? I do. <laughs> okay, I do. all right. All right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm like looking at you. I'm I like, don't know how do much it. more I could take, but. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've been kind of ramping them up each time. All right, this is one. <laughs> I like this one. And this is one that he said to Sonny Liston, who was his first um, when he was fighting for the world championship. He's too ugly to be a world champion. The world champ should be pretty like me. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's a lot of his trash talking is just about how you look. Like you're an ugly little man. Like I love it. And it's kind of it's kind of like this gorgeous George. Gorgeous adjective George. Yeah. And honestly, I think we kind of missed the boat with our names. Like you could have been a sexy slavo. Ooh. Pretty Paz. Ooh, I like that. Sumptuous Slavo. Ooh. Ooh. Nice to meet you. Scrumptious. Scrumptious Slavo. Nice to meet you. That one might stick. Ooh, what if I changed? Okay. Welcome to the podcast. It's Scrumptious Slavo here with Perfection Paz. (laughs) Sup, everybody. <laughs> how y'all doing we're doing great here today we got muhammad ali on the podcast the the people champion himself <laughs> none other <laughs> it's pretty good it's like npr meets <laughs> like <laughs> like a seduction phone hotline <laughs> a seduction phone hotline <laughs> Any other famous lines? I mean, he, he he said Madison Square Garden was too small for him. Yep, I like that. Okay, I think this was, and this will foray into our next thing. So his his major fight, 1963, 
he's fighting for the world heavyweight championship against Sonny Liston, who's the guy who was calling the big ugly bear, said he smells like a bear. Then I the fight, he says, someone's going to die at ringside tonight. He was a 7-1 underdog in this fight, which means that if they were to fight eight times, it's predicted that he would lose seven of them. That's not exactly how that works, but that basically he was a really big underdog and he and and Liston kind of like didn't take him seriously and Mm -hmm. ended up tiring himself out. And then Ali ends up winning the fight. Yep. And Liston was the, as we're saying, he was the belt holder for the heavyweight champion. So yeah, big match. Ali still a little young. He had, played like 19 fights hadn't fought anyone really big yet he was a a huge underdog but that didn't stop him from trash talking yeah and then he he lived up to it and he's out on the ring shouting i'm the greatest (laughs) i told (laughs) you and they said that um (laughs) they're like oh like liston said he's injured and he, and he was like, yeah, they said that he like hurt his shoulder. And he was like, no, the only injury he's got is a cut above his eye from me punching him. <laughs> and then they yeah. said that his shoulder came out of his socket. And he's like, and he said something along the lines of, yeah, well, you're trying to punch me and he's he can't hit me. And so anybody's arm would come out of their socket if they're trying to punch and they can't hit the person. <laughs> yeah. And. So it, it was the fight was called. I, it may have been the eleventh round, but um, they were concerned about Liston's shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what they said. Yeah, that's what they said. So it, it didn't even go to decision. It was um, based on the injury. Yeah. Muhammad Ali was given the victory. And um, another aspect of the fight is that Liston maybe didn't take him quite as seriously, and. Mm-hmm there's speculation that in the early rounds, things weren't going as well as they thought they were for the Liston camp. So they ended up putting this like ointment on his gloves so that when he punched Ali and hit him in the face, it got this stuff in his eyes and made him blinded him in both eyes. Like in between the rounds, he was talking to his trainer and was like, I can't see my eyes are burning and actually tried to take his gloves off to um so he could like rub his eyes and stuff and was like i can't do it anymore and his trainer was like nope (laughs) keep those on we're sending you back out there and then eventually he just sweated enough that it like sweated out of his eyes but Mm -hmm. um they think that it might have been liston's team like put it in there to sabotage him yeah and they also sunny liston was well-known mob affiliations like a, a mafia asset he had they had a huge stranglehold on him, super well documented. Everyone knew it at the time and, and even as he's gone on. So some people like to say this was like this ointment was, you know, encouraged by the by the mob and the mobs paying the referees to kind of ignore it. Um, and also, it makes a lot of sense if you're the mafia and you want to rig a sporting event. Like with boxing, you only have to convince one person. You don't have to convince a team. You don't have to convince like football. You have 11 players on the field at one time. With boxing, you just have to compromise one person and you can make millions off a rigged fight. Yeah, quote unquote, taking the fall. You pay the person to take the fall. You you tell them like you're all right. You're gonna fall in this round, and um, and and if somebody gets punched, you don't know how they really react to it. If they just go, if they just fall back and they can't get up, then Mm -hmm. the fight's over, and it's tough to really tell if they could have. And then also in boxing, you also have the judges, which are notoriously they make crazy decisions. So in boxing, you have. Um, I think three judges that that grade every round and there's always weirdness going on with the boxing judges that I think they can that in history they've been bought and stuff like that or they have bias against certain guys and then so decisions go weird ways absolutely yeah the uh, the the mafia holding on Liston ends up <laughs> yeah, coming. yeah keep that in mind <laughs> yeah so um, after this fight, 
this was when he changed his name to Cash from Cassius Clay to first to Cassius X, and then later to which is a great name, and then later mm-hmm. to um, Muhammad Ali because he yeah. had um, converted to Islam and he's uh, following the teachings of Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. Yeah. So the Nation of Islam, they were a group, you know, associated with Islam, but a lot of the mainstream Islam sects uh, did not believe it, followed a lot of their tenets. But the Nation of Islam, they promoted segregation and they only allow you to be a member if you're African-American and they wanted a separate nation to be set up in America. This was some of their original tenants and Muhammad Ali, who is coming from a childhood where he saw severe segregation, where African-Americans weren't allowed into white only restaurants, stores. They were second-class citizens. This, you know, clearly really upset Muhammad Ali, who then really liked a lot of the ideas that the Nation of Islam had. And this, you know, created a lot of controversy because they wanted segregation. They would use the term white devil. Um, and so it created a lot of waves. And, you know, he changed his name. And a lot of people, even in mainstream media, would not use his um, new name, Muhammad Ali. They would still call him Cassius Clay. Yeah. And from a civil rights perspective, he was very um, strong in his beliefs. He would, uh, and being pro-African-American in a lot of the the ways that he was, um, would take after himself, he would call other boxers if he felt... He would call them Uncle Toms when in the lead up to fights. And um, he was very um, devout in his Muslim faith. And, and it was um, very, I, I don't know, maybe hardline in like the way that he followed his religion. And yeah, and he was very vocal. And his views did change where when he was younger, and, you know, I feel like when you're younger and you're a fighter, you're really upset about something. You take this strong stance. But but over time, so, you know, initially during this time, he is against segregation. Against segregation or pro-segregation? Sorry, sorry, sorry. He is in favor of segregation. He is against interracial marriage. He's really involved in the Nation of Islam. Um, but then we'll see the future trajectory he changed and he started to become less a proponent of the nation of Islam and more of, you know, Sunni, um, that sect of Islam. And it kind of followed a similar trajectory as Malcolm X, who Malcolm X was also like the most powerful member of the nation of Islam besides the leader, Elijah Muhammad, but then Malcolm X, left the nation of islam and he became a he became a sunni islam and at the time the nation of islam shut him out and so muhammad ali also shut out malcolm x and muhammad ali would later regret that he said that was a big mistake and i think he also followed kind of the malcolm x trajectory where muhammad ali did come around to you know kind of more of the martin luther king integration integration yeah yeah and it was crazy because the when and this is when he is like a prize fighter he was elijah muhammad died he was murdered by um and i haven't done too much research on like his murder but i think it was the people who killed him were part of the the nation of islam so there was questions about whether or not um it was malcolm x who had ordered it or something like that or if there was a power struggle within the nation of islam so and muhammad ali had kind of sided with uh elijah muhammad over malcolm x earlier and it made it so there were questions of whether or not there were going to be there was a threat on his life 
So when he was, and this was in the lead up to, I think this was in the lead up to his second fight against Liston, mm-hmm. where he had a 12 person, um, a 12 man, 24 hour guard where, um, because there was fear that like somebody was going to try to kill him. Who? Muhammad Ali. Yeah. In wow. The, in the lead up to the fight in 1965 against Liston where, because that was after Elijah Muhammad was killed and mm-hmm. there was, and it, there was questions over whether or not Muhammad Ali was going to get killed. And so the FBI was literally protecting him. Wow. Okay. And, it was, and so this was the fight that was in Lewiston, Maine. Yeah. Where Muhammad Ali had all these crazy things going on related to the nation of Islam and things of that sort of nature. And then Sonny Liston was also being charged with crimes because he was kind of a, he had a sordid background. And so different states were not, would not allow them to have the fight in their state. And they ended up scheduling the fight in Lewiston, Maine and literally one of the smallest towns that's ever held a world heavyweight fight because it was basically the only place that would allow them would welcome them in to do it. Shout out Maine. Shout out, man. They were supposed to have it at the TD Garden in Boston, but Massachusetts eventually. I'm pretty sure Liston was like charged with crimes in Massachusetts. So they were like, yeah, <laughs> you can't fight here. Um, and then in that fight, Liston ended up getting knocked out in, I think, the second, maybe two minutes in, or it was in the second round. And mm-hmm. um, by a quote unquote phantom punch because mm-hmm. they there's speculation that he took a dive and that i mean the the speculation could go that the mob lost a, m- a lot of money on him fighting in the first fight so then he was still favored in the rematch so they then had him take a fall in the second fight so they could recoup the money that they had lost yeah and l- looking at the video um it's called the phantom punch for a reason it does not look like this haymaker strong punch but a lot of boxing experts say well the place it landed on the head you know it can cause a lot of damage um but at the same time you know it, it's really open for debate whether or not he took the fall but you know his hands were very tied with the mafia and if you owe debt to the mafia, if films have taught us anything is, you know, if you like your limbs, you're going to pay back the mafia and definitely could be he took the fall and he was bribed and paying off debts. Or it could be Muhammad Ali had a super quick punch, hit him in the wrong spot and he was out. Either way, Muhammad Ali won again. This time, not by some injury technicality, but by knocking him out. Yep. And uh, kind of solidifies his place as the, as the world heavyweight champion. And uh, after this, he fights. He fought Floyd Patterson. He fought uh, various other fighters defending his title. He founded his own promotion company called Main Bout. And um, this is uh, concurrently going on with the start of the Vietnam War, um, which is significant in both Muhammad Ali's personal life and his professional career because uh, he ends up getting drafted into the Vietnam War. Yeah. Initially, he, you know, they have some test he couldn't pass, you know, mostly because of his dyslexia. But then the U.S. government needs bodies over in Vietnam. And so they lower the standards to get into the military. And now he is expected to go there. He is drafted. Yeah, which is uh, not in line with his religious beliefs. So that was he basically comes out publicly and says, I am a conscientious objector, which means that I based on religious grounds, do not believe in going to going to war. So I will not be going. And um, there's provisions in U.S. law for conscientious, conscientious objectors to not fight in wars. These were ignored where it was deemed he didn't qualify. And there was actually a lot of 
So, I mean, there was huge amounts of backlash against him for saying he was not going to go, even from other African-American athletes at first, where they basically had to go and have a sit-down meeting with him and talk to him about his religious beliefs and stuff like that. And then they came out and defended him, where there was a lot of people that were just accusing him of saying, oh, sure, yeah, your religious beliefs, you just don't want to go. You just don't want to be supporting Mm -hmm. the country and doing your part. Yeah, it's super controversial at the time. I think now, many years later, people do look at the Vietnam War and are like, that was kind of a mess. But at the time, so many people are in the war, people's brothers, their uncles, their cousins, people they know. And then Muhammad Ali is saying, you know, this war, like I have no quarrel with them. What are we doing getting involved over there? Which are some very valid points. But people are like, oh, like my my cousin died for no reason, and yeah, it's it's very controversial through like all the all sects of society, and this is what his brother was saying was there was some deal that was made where he would he could go into the draft and they guaranteed he wasn't going to be on front lines or anything. He was going to be like an exhibitionist to like entertain the troops. You know, they, he had this very plush government job and they were trying to make a deal with him, mm-hmm. which is kind of strange, first of all, but I guess they were doing this with a lot of high profile athletes at the time, but Muhammad Ali stuck to his conviction, even though it was probably in his best interest because a lot of people worried he would never be able to fight again yep. if he dodged the draft. And obviously he is saying, hey, I will go to prison as opposed to fighting. And so a lot of people, including, you know, his parents and probably his managers and such who want to make money off him are like, hey, like this is not a bad deal. You know, you're not gonna go at you're not gonna go into any risk. But Muhammad Ali is a very adamant person. He said, you know, this is not a just war. I don't want to be involved in it. And he stuck to his guns. And yeah, and it can't be understated how big of a deal it was that he did that because he went from the most budding star in the country at, from an athletics standpoint to when he was called and he didn't step forward. You literally go to the place and they call your name and then you step forward and he didn't step forward. So they called his name three times and he never stepped forward. And then he ended up was being, then he was charged for refu- with refusing service at the time the Vietnam war was actually supported in the country yep. and he went from being a star athlete to being the most hated person in the country yep. from, from the average American's perspective. And he received death threats and all this stuff. And now history looks back on him differently than that, yeah. but it, where now it's, he's, he's stuck by his convictions the mm-hmm. war was, I mean, it was not a very, the war in general was looked upon horribly, but then also the, just the fact that of someone sticking by their religious beliefs and um, not folding for the sake of, uh, of public pressure and all the things and who he was in society at the time, it's all looked, looked back on him much differently now. But at the time it was like unconscionable that someone would do this. And he fought it in court the whole way. So it basically, as soon as this happened, he was stripped of all of his titles and he's stripped of his boxing license in every state that he can box. So he's not allowed to box anymore. And he is no longer the world heavyweight champion. Mm-hmm. They took his passport so he can't travel to another country and box there. His hands are tied with his profession and there is still this looming potential to go to jail. Yeah, so he he could be he could be sentenced up to five years in jail. Um, he is able to be out free while he's appealing the decision, and the appeals process ends up taking like four years. So it was in 1967 when it happened, and then it was in 1971 that it eventually got to the United States Supreme Court, and they unanimously overturn the decision to. Um, convict him for the well because he was convicted he was tried for uh the refusal of service and was found guilty by a jury of his peers in 21 minutes yeah and then eventually the court 
the Supreme Court overrules it because as it turns out, the law is is that you're allowed to consciously object on religious grounds. And that was what he did. And the appeals court that denied his claim gave no reason for why his conscientious objection was not allowed. They just denied it. Yeah. So in 1970, he can then start fighting again because um, because of how the the courts were looking, and but at this time he's being spied on by the NSA, he's being spied on by the FBI, like he is like public enemy number one. But what he's doing is he's going around doing public speaking at um, universities and mm-hmm. um, kind of becoming an activist within society. Yeah, and I heard his public speaking. It went both ways because he was very adamant about his beliefs. So he would go to the colleges and say stuff like this Vietnam War is not just why are we fighting this communist ideology in the college kids like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. But then he's like he has his views where he's like, you shouldn't drink alcohol. You shouldn't smoke marijuana. And, the you know, the liberal college students like, uh. <laughs> and then he'd have his views being against interracial marriage and and. So, you know, he, he was a very interesting person where he has his beliefs. He's going to say them with strong conviction and he's got a lot of different views. It's just kind of interesting. Yeah. And that is something that as I was researching him, there's a lot of things about Muhammad Ali that are categorically commendable where sticking by his convictions and becoming a star and being the catalyst that he was kind of in the civil rights movement and in the anti-war movement as well. Um, but then there was some other st- stuff where it's like this, his views maybe didn't necessarily align with what you would expect a civil rights leader's views to be, where he was pro-segregation at first. Um, I mean, there's also the fact that he was notoriously unfaithful to anybody he was ever oh, I know. dating or married to. And there were... <laughs> there was potential for maybe him having relations with underage women. Yeah. The, what a common theme in people we've done on buzz and biographies for male figures. Being unfaithful <laughs> to their wives. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's a pervasive thing mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. with um, a lot of these epic figure that they um, are married four times and they're notoriously unfaithful the entire time. So where were we? Okay. So where we were was we were talking about um, basically he was spied by the FBI and the NSA. This was all while he was going through his trial that was going through the Supreme court. Um, Or it got all the way or the trial, he was found guilty and then it got all the way to the Supreme court. It got to the point where the Supreme Court ruled that his uh, the appeals court denied his attempt to abstain from the draft as a conscientious objector, but they didn't give any grounds for it. So they ended up throwing out the case. And at that point, he then started being able to fight again, but he had been stripped of his title. So in um, yeah, and this was like right in the middle of his prime, which is kind of crazy. And then it was after this time when he comes back to boxing that he had his biggest boxing matches, where it was like he had all these fans, so many fans, so many people who watched him just to, so they could watch him lose. Mm-hmm. And they were rooting for the other guy, but uh, and he, so he was just kind of this zeitgeist in society for an extended period of time. Absolutely. All right. So he's got some of his biggest fights that he that he had in the seventies when he comes back, including a fight against Joe Frazier called the Fight of the Century. And uh this was a big deal and he lost it. He um I think he like, I don't know if it was that he just wasn't ready to fight Joe Frazier because Joe Frazier obviously hadn't taken that much time off, but, um, but he ended up losing to Joe Frazier and then he went and fought some other people and then he went back and then he beat Joe Frazier in a rematch. So that's fun. Yep. Yep. (laughs) 
good for him fun. <laughs> winning the rematch. And the way that it works in boxing is that if you you beat somebody, then they beat you. What does that mean? It means we're in a trilogy. It's like Rocky Three. Although I don't is that how it worked in Rocky Three? I don't remember with Rocky, but yeah, Muhammad wins the first one, but it's you know, it's kind of a technicality, you know, the, the Frazier's camp. They can complain and say he's not actually the better fighter. Frazier comes back and wins the second fight. You need that final match, that final bout to decide who is the best. Yeah. And it's Muhammad Ali. Yeah. The greatest. And do you know where they had that fight? Number three, the fight, people may have heard of this one. It was called The Thrilla in Manila. <laughs> and. Um, it was fought in Manila, <laughs> no surprise there. And it was a noted bout because the temperatures got to nearly 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And by the time he won this victory, it, he after it, he was like, my body aches everywhere. And he was, com- he was completely exhausted. They were both exhausted the whole fight, but he outlasted Frazier in the, in the third one. Mm-hmm. He had a famous quote to his boxing coach, and and it was like, "This must be what dying feels like." It just it sounded like such a brutal oh, fight. That sounds horrible. Yeah. Um, hey, but he got the win, and it's <laughs> all that matters. He got the win, so yeah. he he got the win, which is great. Good for him. Um, he also had an epic fight against George Foreman who people may know now as a grill maker, but he, before that he was a boxer. What and a legend. Absolutely. And he's a very like gregarious guy now. Like if you watch him in his commercials and in his infomercials, he's extremely gregarious, gregarious and like super happy and friendly. But I guess George Foreman at the time was like terrifying. Terrifying, and he followed a similar trajectory as Ali, where I think he also won the Olympics. He was the younger fighter, and yeah, people were like, eh, "He might kill someone in the ring." Yeah, it was like he is just going to murder someone. So because he, he's so big, and uh, that was in Zaire. And the there's actually there's documentaries that I recommend people go watch about the rumble in the jungle because it was crazy. It was like <laughs> it was just nuts. And they literally the the African crowd in Zaire, they like loved Ali and they just were like mm-hmm. they like chanted like kill him, <laughs> Ali. Yeah, yeah. They and yeah. they just and it was like some of the biggest promotion and some of the craziest fighting. And it was just like, mm-hmm. and that was also mm-hmm. where he used the rope-a-dope strategy, which is the, which is kind of what he was known for in some of his prime years, which is where he would go up against the ropes and he would let the other person punch him and he would just take the punches. And then uh, the other person would get tired because they were just punching him so much. And then once they're tired, he would then come off the ropes and start punching them back and win. And as I understand it, part of it was when he's on the ropes and he gets punched, that the blow, the force from the punch is less because some of it gets absorbed into the ropes. I don't know how true this is. I don't know if the physics works out, but that's like a, a pretty smart move. And then also I think he knows like how far the, how close the person can get to him if he's on the ropes, because there's only so far they can go um, until they're kind of at the end of the boxing ring. So it sounds like it was a pretty novel and clever technique at the time. And I do think it may have been first demonstrated, or at least it became famous against mighty George Foreman. Yep. That was, it was the first time he used the strategy and, and he tired out Foreman and it completely caught him off guard and tired him out and ended up winning. And believe it or not, in this fight, he was a four to one underdog. And yeah. uh, and he still managed to win by TKO. 
which is uh, pretty impressive. He uh, he tended to win when he was a big underdog in these in these major fights, which adds to his allure as a as a celebrity. Yeah, and I think that's why a lot of people argue he could be the greatest boxer. Um, is because he defeated all these big name people, and so when you break it down, you say who's the best boxer of all time? Well. Ali is fighting the best and he's winning. So that's why a lot of people will say Muhammad Ali, as he self-proclaimed, is in fact the greatest. And all these people that he fought, they almost seem like larger than life characters. Um, it's like George Foreman, like the, he sounds like just this big, scary person. And Joe Frazier, it sounds like this just terrifying fighter. Like it was... And later on, Larry Holmes. These are all just like pretty epic fighters in history. And it was kind of the, it feels like it was the peak of the boxing mm-hmm. um, time yeah, I'm, for heavyweight fighters. Yeah. yeah. Like when you ask uh, a random sports fan to name fighters, these are the people they're naming. And then, you know, they'll say Mike Tyson, Floyd Mayweather, mm-hmm. um, some people after his time, but like, a lot of them are the people Ali defeated. Yeah. Another cool thing about Ali was that he was scary and he was intimidating, but he was also kind of a showman. And it was it was kind of fun with him. Like he was he was like saying, I'm gonna kill you, but he was also like he he seemed like somebody who could go on late night television or something like that. <laughs> and like give a good interview. So he had, he kind of had it all from a a personality and a skill perspective so that he was, um, he just kind of, he was kind of the perfect storm of an athlete and a person at Mm -hmm. the time. And then he was also in the politics. So it was like, Oh my gosh, this guy is politically motivated. Well, he has his own convention convictions, which then have political, impact so he has political impact he has athletic impact in boxing which is hugely popular at the time and he's also he's he's a good looking guy and he can um and he's very um entertaining when you put him on television and this is at a time when tv is popping off so it's like wow this guy is just the perfect storm to make him a notable person in history yeah absolutely and his fighting style as well like you're saying it he had power maybe not george foreman power probably not mike tyson power but he had some real power but then he also he had the finesse and the float like a butterfly sting like a bee yep definitely so um so the fight th- that was the rumble in the jungle was viewed by 1 billion people billion with a b like worldwide how- how is that even possible? Like, I don't know. At, at that time, there's <laughs> like know. four or five billion people, and what percentage of the population had television? I don't know. I, I'm a little skeptical of these numbers, but it sounds <laughs> huge. If Wikipedia has the numbers, we accept them as fact. There's nothing else that we can do. <laughs> also, I want to know who pay who at the International Olympic Committee is paying Wikipedia to call all these Olympic events the most watched television stuff ever because each time that they have any, it'll be like the 2016 Olympics was viewed by, and they take the whole month of events <laughs> and they consider it one oh, event. Okay. Yeah. All right. They're like, Oh, all the Olympics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, it's been watched by, if you, if, Everybody listen to this. If you look up the most watched events in in history, they it's basically the Olympics because they just take the whole month. I mean, yeah. if the opening ceremony is there, fine, but like but maybe not. And it's actually kind of interesting stuff. You can go through ooh. Um do you want to do a quick um game? Yeah, let's do it. And I will say the thing with the Olympics, it does have that, you know, worldwide appeal that maybe a lot of these other events like boxing and may not have like, like my mom will watch the Olympics. Slavo, does your mom watch the Olympics? 
Yeah. I mean, everybody watches the Olympics. Yeah, your That's grandma? Thing. She watches yeah, the Olympics? Yeah, Grandma Slava watches the Olympics. So they estimate... Okay, so here we are. In the world, the most watched television broadcast, 2012 London Summer Olympics, July 27, 2012 to August 12th, 2012. So I don't know what day, but they're saying 3.6 billion people watched it. Wow. At some point. Mm -hmm. So they have that. Then there's the Rio Olympics in 2016. And then in 2018, it's the Russia World Cup. And World Cups do very well. Okay, and so so that's a single event, but again, they're probably no. Yeah, they're talking about all. It's over a month. Okay, so which one of these is you would point to and say that's a single span of time that everyone is watching on this list? So I will on this list. So what I will acknowledge is that there's likely events in the list that are part of these that are sure, 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 um, likely. But give us something that it, you know is just one event. Well, I'll I'll give you one. How about got any clues? You want to give me? We are doing a a review of this person's life currently. <laughs> <laughs> is the wow. first single event on this list? Wow impressive how about the first and the second single event on this list are See, that the gives you that, we're that get, yeah that gives you an idea of how big muhammad ali is when we go to the most watched television events and then we get it to a specific event that's not a whole month mm-hmm. he's number one and number two and sure there's probably some stuff like the actual world cup finale that maybe surpassed it but that just gives you a feel for how big these boxing bouts were back in the day crazy well, and, and i'll and i'll tell you this the so i'm looking at this list and so the first one it's two billion people watched these two events it's muhammad ali versus leon spinks two in 1978 which was in new orleans which you may haven't even talked about yet, but this is this is once in the mid to late seventies when he's at the peak of his powers from a um, commercial standpoint. Mm-hmm. And it, television is probably more ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And television is more older. ubiquitous, and so we're kind of getting to that point where he's later in his career, he's not as good. We haven't really talked about these fights because they're not as significant from like a Muhammad Ali fighting standpoint, because he's going around, he's doing fights in. New Orleans, he's doing a fight in Yankee Stadium. He um, He's kind of doing more things to grab attention. So Muhammad Ali versus Leon Spinks 2 is 2 billion people. Muhammad Ali versus Larry Holmes, the last hurrah. This is when he came out of retirement. And I'm pretty sure, was this the fight that it was, that he was like not equipped to fight at all? And they had to find somebody to medically clear him to fight? Because I think it might have been. I don't know. So yeah, towards the end of his career, he really tapered off and there was a fight where people were like, Ooh, we don't feel comfortable watching this. This is. Yeah. I think that was the one against Larry Holmes. Yeah. But 2 billion people watched it and, and there's nothing on this list higher than that. That was from like around that time or earlier. Yeah. That is insane, especially because 30 years later, television is it's probably way more common throughout the world, but yet no Mike Tyson boxing match or other single event had yeah, more viewers. Close. It's it's like the equivalent of like Live Aid, which was a single live concert that they had but they had it in all sorts of different countries and stuff like that so it was a very coordinated effort but but we're talking about (laughs) basically he's the name on it (laughs) it's insane it's so insane that they managed to and on this list there's a bunch more of him yeah 1.4 billion people saw him versus antonio inoki who was a um yeah, a let's Jap- talk about that. A Japanese That's, professional wrestler. 
Yeah. So he had a fight with this Japanese professional wrestler who was a little more, who had skills in kicking and grappling, kind of more like the mixed martial arts today. And so this was a, a big, perhaps publicity stunt where you have this boxer fighting a different style fighter. And what ended up happening was it was sounded kind of boring. The guy just immediately went on his back and was just like kicking Muhammad Ali for the length of the fight. And it ended in a draw. Well, 1.4 billion people watched it. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. I'm a little skeptical of these numbers, but (laughs) well, I guess, I mean, they're doing it in very generic terms, right? Like they're just, they're counting it off by the hundred million. Yeah. In 1978, the world population was 4.28 billion. So we're saying in some of these that around 2 billion, half of the world is watching in 1978 when like television wasn't that common in 1978. (laughs) I don't know. A crazy thing is they're, in 2016, when Muhammad Ali, uh, well, not spoiler, he is he is passed. Um, when he died in 2016, a billion people watched his memorial service. Yeah. Anyways, Muhammad Ali is famous. <laughs> moral, moral of the story, and moving on. So. In uh, so he's doing all these fights. He's making tons of money. He's fighting all. Uh, he's fighting all sorts of people. He's he's commercializing himself, and then um, he really starts kind of slipping. And in some of his later fights, they kind of feel like he maybe kept fighting for too long, and he was mm-hmm. not doing too well physically and mentally. But he would fight anyways, which was not which was not good for him. Yeah, and some people speculated that part of the reason he kept fighting was uh, for financial reasons. He was well known to be very generous, and you know would make donations. He'd visit kids in hospitals, and also he would just give money away to people. And it was so well known, and his brother would get super upset about how many people would leech onto Muhammad Ali. Famously, mm. on one of these fights, he took an entourage 70 people deep across, like, I don't know if this was the one in Manila or the, or the Rumble in the Jungle, but he took 70 people on flights, paid for, you know, steak dinners, hotel lodging. He himself had multiple luxury cars and would give them away at a heartbeats notice to anyone so um some people said that may have been the motivation for why he kept fighting later on who knows yeah i think that's very possible he was definitely um he lived in expensive lifestyle and so he kept fighting and then in 1984 so at this point he is only 42 years old is when he is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He well, he was still, I mean, functioning for many years, but um, that would eventually lead to his death in 2016. But in the meantime, he was very prominent. He was a very prominent philanthropist. He participated in Olympic ceremonies, and he um, was kind of popular around town. So he kind of he stayed active. Yeah, and. There's debate for how much of Parkinson's and his mental deterioration, um, which Parkinson's really your mind stays sharp, but you kind of lose the ability to control what you do with your body. But he, some doctors will say the fighting, there were signs of this. It made it worse. Maybe it even caused the Parkinson's while other people, including himself and other doctors, say it had nothing to do with fighting. But, you know, yeah. up for debate. Yeah, it's tough to tough to tell in that case because um, it very well could have not been related, but at the same time, 
he was definitely fighting well past the point where he and they estimate that he had um that over his life he had taken some like outrageous amount of shots to the head like punches yeah um so i mean yeah. i i guess it wouldn't be surprising from my perspective but yeah no for sure yeah yeah so i guess i don't know i don't have too much to say about his his older years i wouldn't say it's as notable in the um in the muhammad ali story but he did he did cool stuff like he met president obama and like he would always he did work with michael j fox when it came to working with parkinson's disease so he kind of he kind of stayed stayed active and and did things in the community and was a philanthropist yeah yeah he, he was certainly a public figure but it was noticeable especially as he got older that probably daily living was a, a real challenge yeah, for him definitely all right should we uh, wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Pass been uh, a very interesting read. Very interesting. So historical with race relations, the Vietnam War. He himself it was a very interesting person. Yep, definitely agree with that. Definitely an interesting person, and I'm and I'm glad we uh, glad we dug into his life quite a bit more. Alrighty, let's get ready to end the podcast. (laughs) Peace.